0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Canada needs a cohesive strategy against China. And really, it should be about how Canada must not should, respond to China's bullying and intimidation like China's ambassador warning Canada against accepting dissidents from Hong Kong and running the risk of Canadians living in Hong Kong at some 300,000 facing Chinese consequences. Uh, there's no shortage of uh, threats and bullying that China's directing toward this country and other countries. Guy Saint-Jacques is the former Canadian ambassador to China 2012 to 2016, and and the ambassador joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, thank you very much. And as a former ambassador, when you hear the uh, Chinese ambassador to Canada in his most uh, belligerent, and uh, recently uh, even more belligerent than we've heard before, suggesting that uh, if Canada continues to accept Hong Kong dissidents, then life may well become difficult for up to 300,000 Canadian citizens living in Hong Kong. What do you hear?
2: Well, I think it's uh, very deplorable to listen to uh, what he had to say, but unfortunately it reflects the new type of uh, diplomacy that the Chinese like to refer to that as the wolf warrior uh, diplomacy and that's after a film that was very popular in China a few years ago where a Chinese mercenary goes in Africa to free Chinese citizens that are in the middle of the war and Refuse to help uh, American citizens. And as a result, uh, what we see uh, are declarations similar to that of Ambassador Tong that are made uh, in many places in the world where they don't hesitate to criticize uh, local governments to, in fact, to insult people. Uh, Every time that you try to criticize, even uh, mildly, criticize them on issues like Xinjiang, what they are doing in Hong Kong. And I think, uh, as you said at the outset, this reflects uh, the the new China, which is uh, arrogant, aggressive, and that wants to impose its uh, governance model on the world.
0: Did you see this coming when you were in Beijing?
2: Yes, in fact, uh, the... uh, Since uh, Xi Jinping uh, came to power, and he came to power shortly after I arrived uh, for my last posting to Beijing, I arrived in October, and about a month later, he was chosen as the general secretary of the Communist Party of China. And right after that, uh, in his uh, public declarations, including uh, the year after when he uh, reported to the 19th party uh, Congress. uh, of the Communist Party and he said uh, China has succeeded, China is a model for the world. Look at what we have been able to achieve without adopting any Western value and he talked about the China uh, rejuvenation and that it would be the first uh, economic and military uh, power in the in the world by the time that they celebrate the 100th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. And because he is uh, concerned about uh, uh, social unrest, uh, uh, we have seen also uh, uh, him taking very tough uh, policies to silence anyone that would dare to criticize the regime. Uh, Human rights uh, defenders, uh, uh, religious practitioners of various faiths have seen, uh, uh, have encountered a lot of difficulty. And on the international scene, we have seen uh, China that uh, has come to the almost the conclusion that they don't care about their reputation anymore, and they, they are taking very aggressive actions, uh, be it in the South China Sea or in Hong Kong, with the imposition of its uh, uh, national security law that uh, goes against the, the, the spirit of the agreement to of one country and two systems and to protect the autonomy of Hong Kong for 50 years. So uh, all this is happening, uh, has happened very quickly. I think it took a while for uh, not only for the Canadian government, but also for uh, other Western governments to realize what was happening and to come to the conclusion that China is a, a strategic uh, competitor and that we better pay more attention to what uh, it's doing, uh, including in Canada because there have been a number of uh, incidents uh, where uh, it was caught uh, trying to interfere uh, either in Canadian politics or uh, among Chinese students studying in Canada or uh, among Canadians of Chinese origin. So uh, I think it's a it's time to, to change our approach and to be a lot more firm and forceful uh, when we see transgressions uh, by China.
0: So, and uh, I just I don't know why that isn't really readily apparent to everybody in Ottawa. And and you were criticized by the Prime Minister's Office not long ago for being as open as you are about the situation instead of being congratulated. And then when you told them that you were going to continue doing what you're doing, which is to the benefit of the Canadian people. back down a bit but what what must canada do ambassador what are we willing to do what should be we be willing to do when china insults and threatens and bullies this country like the two michaels or takes actions like casually closing down a combined canada china covid 19 vaccine development which was announced by justin trudeau personally earlier in the year what can we do uh, decisively and quickly to let them know we're not going to be pushed around
2: Well I think there are a number of measures of course we we are a, a small country and uh, China does not pay much attention to to Canada we are their uh, 20 uh, 21st uh, market uh, for for their exports but I think that uh, in fact we have to uh, to work uh, a lot more closely with other countries to develop common strategies and responses when we see China acting as a, as a bully and taking hostages as the tour, the, the poor two Michaels have been a, a victim of. Uh, I hope that uh, uh, if there's a change in the U.S. administration, there will be uh, a review of the way that they handle uh, uh, international affairs, and I'm convinced that uh, uh, President Biden uh, would be would want to rebuild bridges uh, with allies and work together because we are all faced with the same uh, problems when it comes to uh, to China with its uh, spying, its uh, predatory uh, trade practices, uh, and uh, uh, you know, in the case of Canada, we have to uh, to to push back any time again when we see cases of interference. And uh, there are uh, things that we can do. Uh, if uh, We have to keep in mind that the federal government has not announced its decision uh, yet on whether it would allow the uh, uh, Chinese company Huawei to participate in 5G development in Canada. But also, if we look just down the road in about a year and four or five months from now, it will be the opening of the Winter Olympics. In Beijing, and China sees this as a very prestigious event. Well, <clears throat> I think that uh, if Canada were to uh, speak with other countries and say, uh, "What should be our position, on, and what can we extract from China for agreeing to attend the uh, Olympics?" and it could be a combination of things like uh, telling them, "You will, you have to." Uh, repeal uh, the national security law and let uh, Hong Kong uh, free. You have to agree to let uh, an international commission go to Xinjiang to investigate the situation there. Uh, And so I think we have an opportunity there. Uh, And I would note that, uh, you know, despite the fact that uh, China has tried to penalize us uh, uh, on the trade side, uh, last year our uh, exports went down by... uh, uh, 4.5 billion dollars, uh, uh, 19%. Well, this year our imports uh, are up, and the reason for that is that China needs our wheat, uh, our pork. They, they were faced with uh, major uh, floods, and I'm convinced that trade—they will always need our products. So I think that we can be, uh, we can adapt uh, a position that is a lot firm. Uh, firmer, uh, knowing that in fact the appeasement strategy that has been followed since uh, December 28th has not resulted in improving the uh, situation of the two Michaels. They are detained in awful conditions uh, and we have been told that uh, uh, there won't be any progress until Mrs. Ma uh, is back in China and that could be uh, qu- it could take quite uh, some time before yes. we have a decision on
0: This is a story, and this is a situation that needs to be addressed and corrected. And what it is, and I'm glad that so many of you sent me emails and replied on Twitter when we started talking about it a couple of days ago, about a week and a half or two weeks ago. And it has to do with the Afghan interpreters who were alongside Canada's forces, Canadian soldiers in Afghanistan, at the tip of the fighting. The Afghan interpreters who were unarmed, and, yes, they were paid to do their work, but they were unarmed, and they stood alongside our troops out in the uh, midst of the action. And they were often the ones who, and I've had Canadian soldiers, veterans who were in Afghanistan tell us this, it was the interpreters who were first targeted by the uh, by the uh, Taliban and by the insurgents. And the idea was if they killed the interpreter, then the Canadians would have no communication possibilities with the local communities and the local population, And I've also had Canadian veterans say the interpreters saved Canadian lives. So now here they are. They have stood alongside our soldiers, and they are now themselves targets of the insurgents. Our soldiers are no longer there, but the interpreters are. And one of the interpreters is Alex, or as he uh, on on Twitter describes himself as left behind Alex. We've talked to Alex in the past. Um... And and he's still there. He's loved. He wants to come to Canada. He needs to be in this country, in order for himself and for his family to be safe. And he joins us from Afghanistan. How are you, Alex?
3: Uh, hello, my friend Roy. Not bad. I'm doing well. How, how about you and your? I mean, friends and family.
0: All good. All good, Alex. But we're interested in in you and. Uh, it's been a number of years, quite a number of years now, since you had an opportunity, and it was a very brief opportunity afforded by the last government to uh, enter, uh, at least to petition to enter Canada, but you were out in the in, in, in the field with, with soldiers and you weren't aware of it. So are you still being actively hunted, as it were, by the insurgents? Are you still a target for the Taliban and the insurgents?
3: Hey, yes, of course, my friend, because I'm living in hiding, you know. So these days, if you're listening to the news, the NATO forces are trying to leave Afghanistan, and the insurgents, especially Taliban, that took all over the Afghanistan. Like they are even in Kabul. Kabul was a safe place, but not anymore. Like these days, it's not even safe for anyone living here. So we're experiencing a very bad situation right now. Before it was a bit safe, but right now, everything is getting worse.
0: You told us last time that we talked that you had received communications sort of through somebody else who knew that person or these people, and they knew that those people knew you, that your life and the life of your family was directly threatened.
3: Do I have that correctly? Of course. Of course, my friend. Yeah. They uh, threw like light letters into uh, the people who served alongside ISAF and NATO Forces. They credited them. And they're like, seriously, but without any hesitation, they're going to take lives because they call us traitors and we were against them. Of course, we were against them because they were the extremists and they were destroying our country. So that's why we, I mean, we're traitors to them.
0: Yeah. Tell us what you did with the Canadian forces when you were with the Canadian soldiers. Where the fighting took place. Tell us what you would do on a typical mission. What was your job?
3: My job was as a bridge, as a link between the, um, I mean, the Canadian forces and the Afghan uh, task force. Mainly, they were calling them A.N.A. I was just translating or interpreting uh, during the uh, firefights, uh, during the office work. But mainly, we were going out on patrols. And my job was mainly to translate for uh, my mentors and the Afghan task force. Even though, like, there was a threat and I knew, like, it's a, like, risky job for me and my my colleagues. But we accepted to go out on the field. And we understood, like, because we were promised that at the end we can have an opportunity of a, a safe life back in Canada. So, of course... Uh, being as a translator in a country like Afghanistan is not a, an easy job. I mean, it's really, really risky and dangerous, not only for me but whoever is doing this job. And so right now, everyone who, like, uh, who did and who are still working as an interpreter, so their lives are at risk. I'm
0: what sorry, would it mean I'm to you? you? Yeah, no, I understand but that. that. What would it mean to you to be able to bring yourself and your family to Canada, as your good friend James Akam was able to do, and we've had James on the program with you. James lives in Alberta, fellow translator, good personal friend of yours, doing well, Canadian citizen, I believe now. Uh, what would it mean to you, Alex, to be able to come to Canada and live with your family?
3: It would be like, I mean, that can be like a dream come true, you know, if, uh, that happens, that means a lot to me. Like that means like humanity. That means like people in Canada, they really care about human rights. I mean, that means everything to me. I, mean, I don't care personally about my life, or my, about myself, but my family, they mean everything to me. You know, everybody has family and they take care of their families. Yeah. So if this happens, it means like my dream, my big hope, my big, my big, my big wish is going to uh, become true.
0: We can do it. As a people, we know we can do it because we've influenced governments before to do the right thing and uh, not so long ago, but they're still dragging their heels on allowing couples and families to reunite. And here we have the situation of Afghan interpreters fearing for their lives after serving with Canadian forces during the fighting that took place over 13 years. Uh, Chance Burles uh, was with the CAF uh, in Afghanistan. He's the national co-director of the annual uh, Walk for Veterans, which was a great success two uh, two weeks ago. And, uh, Charles, thank you very much. Uh, Chance, I'm sorry. Thank you for coming on the program. And how important were the veterans to the CAF on the ground?
4: Um, The the interpreters, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the interpreters were uh, essential. I mean, we couldn't get the job done without them they were our link to the locals and the locals were our link to providing security uh, against the taliban so they were like we could not do the job without them we had them everywhere we went at all times
0: and were they often the first targets for the insurgents
4: absolutely yeah the um you could actually usually tell just by where the eyes went of the people you were talking to if um they were either insurgent or friendly towards the insurgent because usually they would look at the interpreter immediately and they would just, there would be rage, hate, uh, a lot of negative feelings. And you could, you could immediately see it whenever you're dealing with uh, locals that were friendly towards the Taliban because they would uh, be really aggressive towards the interpreters.
0: Is it true that the interpreters saved Canadian lives?
4: hundred percent. I, I couldn't even tell you how many times we had, um, interpreters come and tell us uh, that the people we were talking to were were not being entirely truthful or they were not being um, as forth- give, forthright as they should be just based on um, you know local local dialects and um, reading the people themselves and um, sometimes we I mean one patrol I was on specifically we were told that there were Taliban waiting for us further down the road at a certain location and the interpreter told us that um, it was not as accurate as they were trying to say it was so we were much more on guard when we started moving and they hit us uh, quite a bit earlier and on the route that we (laughs) that they shouldn't have known we were going to be on so um, yeah absolutely uh, they save lives all the time
0: you don't have any doubt uh, chance that uh, Alex and the other interpreters uh, who are still there are in in really serious danger no doubt there
4: no doubt at all the um we actually had a few interpreters die on our tour uh well i can't say that uh they died for sure they stopped showing up for work and then we just got reports later that uh they were gone and when when i mean gone it was just like they dropped off space here so they either disappeared into hiding so good that our intelligence forces couldn't get to them or uh or they were made to disappear by the taliban um they were their families were continually targeted on multiple occasions we had uh, interpreters come up to us to start the day's work and say that they uh, they received a message that their families were being held hostage or um that uh, their parts of their family had died and as an attempt to draw them out into the open so it was uh, they were absolutely in danger continually
0: have they earned yeah. Really, I mean, earned the right to come to Canada.
4: I would say so. The um, you know, not everything's on a bell curve, right? I mean, not all of the interpreters were a hundred percent perfect, but there were a lot that laid on that laid their lives down for us to uh, just so we'd get the job done to, in the the dream of a free Afghanistan. And um, you know, absolutely, was, uh, they 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 earned their stripes through and through yeah. many
0: times so over. yeah um Alex do you want to talk to uh, to chance
3: yes of course why not go ahead and how's it going sir uh, it's it's going it's going
4: <laughs> I got uh <laughs> two crazy kids at home and um and I'm you know living in a great country that uh starting to snow here so it's great. How's um, well? I guess I know how life over there is. Yeah,
1: Are you like uh, surviving well? Really sir. It's a
4: little
0: different, It's difficult. You don't know each other, and uh, so we're we're trying to do an introduction here. But yeah. what I'm trying to get across is that that when you uh, when you when you serve alongside the military and uh, you you provide support and you save lives. I think you've already dedicated. you have shown that you're dedicated to uh, doing the right thing and being the right person to uh, to enter this country. So I, I think that for everybody, everybody in this country has an opportunity to now to 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 react and to we've had the opportunity for several years. But we now really, I think have the responsibility because we don't want to have Alex and his fellow interpreters who were positive contributors to the Canadian mission. We don't want their blood on our hands and we can bring them to Canada, as James Akam was brought to Canada and is faring very well, in fact, in the Calgary region. So, uh, Alex, are you aware of of any opportunity for you to apply to come to Canada that would would be different to the general rule to to come here? Is there a special accommodation for interpreters in any way?
3: There isn't any way for interpreters to go to Canada, because there was a process before. And the process was closed pretty good and in, in any case if i try, it's, it's really hard for me because i can't go to the second country like going to the UNHCR office and register over there it's really really hard for me yeah. and there's no any other easy way
0: and you have no doubt that if you stay in afghanistan if you're if you can't leave if you can't get out of the country and ideally come here. There's no question in your mind that you're going to be killed. Am I correct? Of course. Yes. Chancey, you, you see that happening as well?
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the the fact that he's um, you know alive today is uh, a testament to how hard he's worked at, at staying secure and safe but um, unfortunately with the the insurgents of the Taliban kind of taking the country back over, it's uh, unfortunately only a matter of time.
0: Yeah, and you talk about your two kids at home and living in a great country. And uh, Alex has kids, and uh, now he's worried about their, their lives. There's, It's just the right thing to do. I don't think that it's really difficult math. Um, it, they deserve to be here um alex we're just going to keep working on your behalf and pushing really hard and do the best we can and i know that mr burles has uh, a lot of contacts in the veterans community and chance maybe we can get canada's veterans community to push push hard as well to get these interpreters into canada i think
4: that's a uh, great I idea really appreciate I really appreciate
0: you know. yeah all right guys thank you so much alex So i'm going to stay in touch with you you know that and uh, chance thank yeah, you so much and the, and the walk for veterans what a great success this year
4: yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it 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 uh, blew blew me away actually. How how big of a success it was! I couldn't be more thrilled.
0: Yeah, people care. People care. Yeah, Thank absolutely. you, Alex. Thank you, Chance. We'll talk again. Good pleasure. All right. All right. All right, guys. So look, it's not uh, it's not difficult. Uh, it really shouldn't be difficult to just go ahead and do what has to be done and what should be done. You will listen to this. This young man, still a young man in Afghanistan with a young family. And you listen to Mr. Burles, who was a soldier, Canadian soldier in Afghanistan. And there's no question in Chance Burles' mind that if uh, Alex and his family don't get out of Afghanistan, that they're going to die. That they'll be hunted down and they'll be killed. Not words that I'm just offering to you, but you heard it. And... um, when you know that these interpreters saved Canadian lives, and you heard Chance talk about that from the man who was there, the Canadian soldier who was there, and I've heard it from more than one, why are we not, why are we not doing the right thing? What's the reluctance? You know, Mr. Trudeau sent out a, a, a tweet a number of years ago welcoming the world to Canada, the people who were disenfranchised, welcoming them to Canada. What's wrong with the interpreters who stood alongside our Canadian forces? And why aren't the rest of us getting engaged? Why aren't the rest of us making a phone call, sending an email, getting in touch with your Member of Parliament, pursuing the, 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 the Prime Minister or the Public Safety Minister or whoever's in charge, the Minister of Veterans Affairs? Pursue them. Get after the opposition parties, the Conservatives. They can do more than they're doing. They're not doing anything. They're really doing nothing. The NDP are doing nothing. What are the Greens doing? Nothing. Get it done. So after 35 years, more than 35 years, the killer of nine-year-old Christine Jessup has been identified as Calvin Hoover, who was a neighbor. Another neighbor was Paul Morin, originally convicted of the murder, cleared by DNA evidence, absolved of the crime, but there are always questions that follow people who are absolved for any reasons. Now, because of additional DNA evidence, uh, we do know that it was a Calvin Hoover who murdered Christine Jessup and uh, Geek Paul Moran should by everybody now be known to be innocent. James Lockyer was um the lawyer or may still be the lawyer for James for uh, for uh, Guy Paul Moran. I've talked to James many year, times over the years about this and other cases. Good to have you back on the show, James. And how is Guy Paul Moran today?
5: Uh Guy Paul Moran is, is good. He's been uh, he's always been good, you know. He's uh, uh he's always been very <laughs> Even-handed about this, uh, uh, he went through an awful experience, but he's as best you can. He's put it behind him.
0: Safe to say that without DNA testing being available and able to conclusively rule out Guy Paul Moret as the killer of Christine Jessup, he'd still be behind bars innocently today.
5: Well, it's certainly possible. Uh, we had his, his conviction was under appeal when we got the DNA results. So mm-hmm. uh, who knows what would have happened at the appeal otherwise. But uh, the DNA was decisive uh, back in uh, January of 1995 because it excluded him. But it still left open whose DNA was it. And uh, the, uh, the Toronto police of uh, uh, using, in fact, that same sample of now... Uh, finally uh, put a name put a real killer to the uh, to the dna
0: and well done to the toronto police
5: yes i think so i mean i'd like to know a bit more about it uh it, i mean it's taken a long time but uh it, it just seems to me that this chap hoover uh you know should have been uh, closely uh, looked at much sooner um You know, one of the first things that you would have done in this case is to try and find all the people associated with the uh, Jessups back then and have them submit to DNA testing, but uh, that doesn't seem to have been done in this case.
0: Yeah, it's like the the, uh, David Milgaard case and Larry Fisher. Same thing. They should have been looking at Fisher. Instead, they grabbed Milgaard because he was conveniently available.
5: Yes, uh, it's... I, I often talk about uh, David's case in the context of Guy Paul's case. Um, uh, David's, uh, the, the, the nice thing about David was when we got the DNA results that eliminated David, they also proved that Fisher was the, uh, the real killer both at the same time because we had Fisher was already our suspect and uh, we already had his DNA. So both DNAs were there the day uh, uh, the semen was actually uh, found and in that case, and and analysed.
0: Yeah, I should have said at the beginning that uh, James Lockyer is uh, one of the founders of uh, Aidwick, the Association for the Defence of the Wrongfully Convicted, now Innocence Canada. Um, so now we have we have witnessed the DNA clearing of Guy Paul Moran, uh, James, as well as DNA evidence identifying Calvin Hoover, who committed suicide, declared the killer. There are justice-wide, and I know you just touched on this, but there are justice-wide, justice system-wide implications here. Uh,
5: Yes, there are. I mean, at the broadest level, it's uh, another uh, example of uh, a person convicted of a crime that we know uh, they didn't commit. And, of course, that gives us uh, the chance to do a sort of a post-mortem on how did Guy Paul, who had absolutely zero to do with Christine Jessup's death, uh, uh managed to get convicted of it. And, and there's actually already been a public inquiry into that, and a lot of the things that went wrong in Guy Paul's case have been identified. The use of jailhouse snitches, uh, uh, poor, very poor forensic science, uh, a couple of things that spring to mind, and, of course, the the uh, police focus on Guy Paul to the exclusion of all others, uh, uh, which meant that, obviously, uh, Hoover wasn't properly... Uh, uh, investigated. Um, but it, it does have tremendous implications, I think, for the justice system. It's a, we, we need to keep being reminded that we are a, a human system, we're therefore a fallible system, and we therefore uh, do make mistakes and will continue to make mistakes in the future, whatever level, whether it's at the police level, the witness level, the prosecution level, or, or, or the judge level
0: let me ask you about the the appeals level the appeals process is that in need of restructuring uh
5: in my view yes absolutely The, the, the the appeals uh the the appeal system is 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 a system that focuses on process not on guilt or innocence uh and and a focus on process as to whether a person got a trial according to all the rules of the game as opposed to a focus on whether the person convicted in fact committed the crime, just seems to me to be the wrong way of looking at things. That Appeal appeal courts should be much more prepared to look at issues of guilt or innocence than they are.
0: 39% of Canadians say a coronavirus vaccine should be mandatory. That's 39%. I think that just a few months ago, it was closer to 70% of Canadians saying that. The survey was done for the Association for Canadian Studies, and Jack Jedwab heads the association. She joins us from Montreal. Jack, thank you very much for the time, and uh, let's get at this. Was it 60-plus percent of Canadians just a few months ago said mm-hmm. a vaccine should be mandatory?
1: Correct, yeah, and now it's down to about 40%, as you said, uh, as of the measure we took, October 9th to 11th. So a substantial drop in a reversal in terms of Extent obviously to which people think it be pre- given on a voluntary basis. And that right now is the majority position that Canadians are expressing as regards to vaccines.
0: What does it say to you?
1: What's uh, the I, message? I think it says that uh, there's some skepticism uh, amongst the population about the vaccine. Uh, you know, we actually did ask a question a few weeks ago amongst those who said that they wouldn't take a vaccine as to. Uh, why they wouldn't do it. And the three top answers were they didn't feel it had been tested sufficiently long enough uh, and that more research need be done. They didn't trust its effectiveness and they had concerns about side effects of the vaccine. So those are the three top answers that people gave in terms of those who were hesitant about taking a vaccine because there's a relationship between the sort of people who saying it should be voluntary and those people who hesitate to take a vaccine. And our survey also revealed a slight drop, not as great, the extent to which people said that should a vaccine come out and be proven to be, uh, be approved by the health authorities, they would take one. That dropped from about 70% to about
0: 60%. So you have 39% saying it should be mandatory, but you have, what is it, 60% who are saying a that, that they would take it if, it's, that, uh, if it was available?
1: Uh, yeah, that if it were available, uh, it had been approved by Health Canada, uh, that they would uh, take the vaccine. That's uh, about 63%. It was above 70% last July uh, previously, asked Canadians about that.
0: Bit of a head shaker.
1: Uh, yeah, I find it a bit surprising as well. Uh, you know, again, uh, uh, when you compare to our colleagues south of the border, where the rate of vaccine hesitation, as they call it, is a lot higher, we're still a fair bit ahead uh, at uh, 63%, as I said, of us saying we take a vaccine if approved by health authorities compared to 47% in the U.S. Uh, so, even though uh, they're a fair percentage of us, a growing percentage of things, should be voluntary, uh, the majority still at this point are indicating they would take a vaccine if, if approved by health authorities in Canada.
0: What's your sense uh, if we ask this question two months from now, if there's no vaccine, and probably won't be two months from now, I don't want to scare people, Pfizer is saying that by the end of November they expect to ask the FDA to fast track uh, a vaccine but we
1: don't know what's going to happen
0: what do you what do you think the number might be two months from now if it's gone from 60 plus to 39 percent in two months do you think it's on a downward track uh
1: it appears to be on a downward track i guess we'll have to see what uh you know public health messaging looks like Uh, my sense from speaking to people who are uh involved in some of that messaging is that they're going to reinforce the message about the importance of uh people taking the vaccine and of it being mandatory you can't have uh, a minority of people taking the vaccine and hope to defeat the uh, contagion. So mm-hmm. it's going to be extremely important for people to understand why it's important to take the vaccine.
0: And you also found out that only about 6 of 10 Canadians will take the vaccine, the regular flu vaccine, this year, or say so in your survey.
1: Correct. Uh, in terms of the flu vaccine, that was yeah. percentage that There's a relationship we noticed uh, between those people who say that they would take the flu shot, and those who say they would take the vaccine against COVID-19. So you can see there is a bit of that uh, general vaccine hesitation, uh, or at least a, a portion of people who, who don't like the idea of taking vaccines, because uh, when you ask people who say they're going to take the flu shot, uh, three-quarters of them said they'll take the uh, uh, COVID-19 vaccine, compared to those who say they will not take the flu shot, and that's 42% who'd say they would take uh, the COVID-19 vaccine.
0: Mm-hmm. I just find this, uh, this drop in numbers to be really, really interesting. And I think demonstrative of the fact that more and more people are becoming more and more edgy, more and more unwilling to, uh, to just go along to get along. And I see it in emails. Frankly, I see it every day in emails. But let me ask you this. What about demos, d- demographics and gender? How did that come into play?
1: Uh, in this case, um, it was, uh, I believe men who were, uh, less likely to take the vaccine than women. Uh, and young people, I believe, were more likely to take the vaccine, although uh, you would think that it would be seniors they are more vulnerable that uh, would be inclined to so, but that's not what the survey uh, indicated. Uh, another key p- p- point in the survey that was important, though, is that uh, Canadians did feel that once the, once the vaccine was approved by health authorities, it should be offered on a priority basis uh, to institutional health care workers, then seniors, Uh, than for residents and persons in seniors' long-term care facilities. So there's a bit of that, which I think is not a bad thing, that people understand there are segments of the population that are more vulnerable because the whole issue of distribution of the vaccine will be uh, a real challenge uh, when it's eventually approved, you know, as we go forward.
0: Yeah. Jack, how do you apply this information? What do you do with it?
1: Again, it's critical for health authorities, and this is becoming a priority issue, uh, I know, from conversations with some of the health authorities. It's one of the issues we're going to be tracking probably, every week we that's not something we've been tracking every week uh previously we've tracked issues around fear of getting covet satisfaction with government trust institutions uh following public guidance in terms of health measures on a weekly basis for the first 30 weeks but this isn't one we have been tracking weekly and we will be tracking this weekly going forward because as we get closer to the a point at which the vaccine will be ready, we'll need to have uh, a, a good assessment of, of what will what will uh, need to be done in order to get the uh, largest number of people possible to take the vaccine.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green.